Chapter Ten of South. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. South, the story of Shackleton's last expedition, 1914 to 1917, by Sir Ernest Shackleton. Chapter Ten, across South Georgia. The sun rose in the sky with every appearance of a fine day, and we grew warmer as we toiled through the soft snow. Ahead of us lay the ridges and spurs of a range of mountains, the transverse range that we had noticed from the bay. We were travelling over a gently rising plateau, and at the end of an hour we found ourselves growing uncomfortably hot. Years before, on an earlier expedition, I had declared that I would never again growl at the heat of the sun and my resolution had been strengthened during the boat journey. I called it to mind, as the sun beat fiercely on the blinding white snow-slope. After passing an area of crevasses, we passed for our first meal. We dug a hole in the snow about three feet deep with the adz and put the primus into it. There was no wind at the moment, but a gust might come suddenly. A hot hoosh was soon eaten, and we plodded on towards a sharp ridge between two of the peaks already mentioned. By eleven a.m. we were almost at the crest. The slope had become precipitous, and it was necessary to cut steps as we advanced. The adz proved an excellent instrument for this purpose, a blow sufficing to provide a foothold. Anxiously but hopefully I cut the last few steps, and stood upon the razor-back, while the other men held the rope and waited for my news. The outlook was disappointing. I looked down a sheer precipice to a chaos of crumpled ice fifteen hundred feet below. There was no way down for us. The country to the east was a great snow upland, sloping upwards for a distance of seven or eight miles to a height of over four thousand feet. To the north it fell away steeply in glaciers into the bays, and to the south it was broken by huge outfalls from the inland ice sheet. Our path lay between the glaciers and the outfalls, but first we had to descend from the ridge on which we stood. Cutting steps with the adz, we moved in a lateral direction round the base of a dolomite, which blocked our view to the north. The same precipice confronted us. Away to the northeast there appeared to be a snow slope that might give a path to the lower country, and so we retraced our steps down the long slope that had taken us three hours to climb. We were at the bottom in an hour. We were now feeling the strain of the unaccustomed marching. We had done little walking since January, and our muscles were out of tune. Skirting the base of the mountain above us, we came to a gigantic bergschund, a mile and a half long and one thousand feet deep. This tremendous gully, cut in the snow and ice by the fierce winds blowing round the mountain, was semicircular in form, and it ended in a gentle incline. We passed through it, under the towering precipice of ice, and at the far end we had another meal and a short rest. This was at 12.30 p.m. Half a pot of steaming bovril ration warmed us up, and when we marched again, ice inclines at angles of 45 degrees did not look quite as formidable as before. Once more we started for the crest. After another weary climb we reached the top. The snow lay thinly on blue ice at the ridge, and we had to cut steps over the last fifty yards. The same precipice lay below, and my eyes searched vainly for a way down. The hot sun had loosened the snow, which was now in a treacherous condition, and we had to pick our way carefully. 
Looking back, we could see that a fog was rolling up behind us and meeting in the valleys a fog that was coming up from the east. The creeping grey clouds were a plain warning that we must get down to lower levels before becoming enveloped. The ridge was studded with peaks, which prevented us getting a clear view either to the right or to the left. The situation in this respect seemed no better at other points within our reach, and I had to decide that our course lay back the way we had come. The afternoon was wearing on, and the fog was rolling up ominously from the west. It was of the utmost importance for us to get down into the next valley before dark. We were now up 4,500 feet, and the night temperature at that elevation would be very low. We had no tent and no sleeping bags, and our clothes had endured much rough usage, and had weathered many storms during the last ten months. In the distance, down the valley below us, we could see tussock grass close to the shore, and if we could get down, it might be possible to dig out a hole in one of the lower snowbanks, line it with dry grass, and make ourselves fairly comfortable for the night. Back we went, and after a detour we reached the top of another ridge in the fading light. After a glance over the top, I turned to the anxious faces of the two men behind me and said, "'Come on, boys!' Within a minute they stood beside me on the ice ridge. The surface fell away at a sharp incline in front of us, but it merged into a snow slope. We could not see the bottom clearly, owing to the mist and bad light, and the possibility of the slope ending in a sheer fall occurred to us but the fog that was creeping up behind allowed no time for hesitation. We descended slowly at first, cutting steps in the snow. Then the surface became softer, indicating that the gradient was less severe. There could be no turning back now, so we unroped and slid in the fashion of youthful days. When we stopped on a snowbank at the foot of the slope, we found that we had descended at least nine hundred feet in two or three minutes. We looked back, and saw the grey fingers of the fog appearing on the ridge, as though reaching after the intruders into untrodden wilds. But we had escaped. The country to the east was an ascending snow upland, dividing the glaciers of the north coast from the outfalls of the south. We had seen from the top that our course lay between two huge masses of crevasses, and we thought that the road ahead lay clear. This belief, and the increasing cold, made us abandon the idea of camping. We had another meal at 6 p.m. A little breeze made cooking difficult in spite of the shelter provided for the cooker by a hole. Crean was the cook, and Worsley and I lay on the snow to windward of the lamp so as to break the wind with our bodies. The meal over, we started up the long, gentle ascent. Night was upon us, and for an hour we plodded along in almost complete darkness, watching warily for signs of crevasses. Then about 8 p.m. a glow which we'd seen behind the jagged peaks resolved itself into the full moon, which rose ahead of us and made a silver pathway for our feet. Along that pathway in the wake of the moon we advanced in safety, with the shadows cast by the edges of crevasses showing black on either side of us. Onwards and upwards through the soft snow we marched, resting now and then on hard patches which had revealed themselves by glittering ahead of us in the white light. By midnight we were again at an elevation of about four thousand feet. Still we were following the light, for as the moon swung round towards the northeast our path curved in that direction. The friendly moon seemed to pilot our weary feet. We could have had no better guide. If in bright daylight we had made that march, we would have followed the course that was traced for us that night. 
midnight found us approaching the edge of a great snowfield, pierced by isolated nunataks, which cast long shadows like black rivers along the wide expanse. A gentle slope to the northeast lured our all-too-willing feet in that direction. We thought that at the base of the slope lay Stromness Bay. After we had descended about three hundred feet, a thin wind began to attack us. We had now been on the march for over twenty hours, only halting for our occasional meals. Wisps of cloud drove over the high peaks to the southward, warning us that wind and snow were likely to come. After one a.m. we cut a pit in the snow, piled up loose snow around it, and started the primers again. The hot food gave us another renewal of energy. Worsley and Crean sang their old songs when the primus was going merrily. Laughter was in our hearts, though not on our parched and cracked lips. We were up and away again within half an hour, still downward to the coast. We felt almost sure now that we were above Stromness Bay. A dark object down at the foot of the slope looked like Mutton Island, which lies off Husvik. I suppose our desires were giving wings to our fancies, for we pointed out joyfully various landmarks revealed by the now vagrant light of the moon, whose friendly face was cloud-swept. Our high hopes were soon shattered. Crevasses warned us that we were on another glacier, and soon we looked down almost to the seaward edge of the great riven ice mass. I knew there was no glacier in Stromness, and realized that this must be Fortuna Glacier. The disappointment was severe— Back we turned, and tramped up the glacier again, not directly tracing our steps, but working at a tangent to the southeast. We were very tired. At five a.m. we were at the foot of the rocky spurs of the range. We were tired, and the wind that blew down from the heights was chilling us. We decided to get down under the lee of a rock for a rest. We put our sticks and the adze on the snow, sat down on them as close to one another as possible, and put our arms round each other. The wind was bringing a little drift with it, and the white dust lay on our clothes. I thought that we might be able to keep warm and have half an hour's rest this way. Within a minute my two companions were fast asleep. I realized that it would be disastrous if we all slumbered together, for sleep under such conditions merges into death. After five minutes I shook them into consciousness again, told them that they had slept for half an hour, and gave the word for a fresh start. We were so stiff that for the first two or three hundred yards we marched with our knees bent. A jagged line of peaks with a gap like a broken tooth confronted us. This was the ridge that runs in a southerly direction from Fortuna Bay, and our course eastward to Stromness lay across it. A very steep slope led up to the ridge, and an icy wind burst through the gap. We went through the gap at 6 a.m. with anxious hearts as well as weary bodies. If the farther slope had proved impassable, our situation would have been almost desperate. But the worst was turning to the best for us. The twisted, wave-like rock formations of Huswick Harbour appeared right ahead in the opening of dawn. Without a word, we shook hands with one another. To our minds, the journey was over, though as a matter of fact, twelve miles of difficult country had still to be traversed. A gentle snow-slope descended at our feet towards a valley that separated our ridge from the hills immediately behind Hoswick, and as we stood gazing, Worsley said solemnly, "'Boss, it looks too good to be true.' Down we went, to be checked presently by the side of water, two thousand five hundred feet below. 
we could see the little rave ripples on the black beach, penguins strutting to and fro, and dark objects that looked like seals lolling lazily on the sand. This was an eastern arm of Fortuna Bay, separated by the ridge from the arm we had seen below us during the night. The slope we were traversing appeared to end in a precipice above this beach. But our revived spirits were not to be damped by difficulties on the last stage of the journey, and we camped cheerfully for breakfast. Whilst Worsley and Crean were digging a hole for the lamp and starting the cooker, I climbed a ridge above us, cutting steps with the adz in order to secure an extended view of the country below. At 6.30 a.m. I thought I heard the sound of a steam whistle. I dared not be certain, but I knew that the men at the whaling station would be called from their beds about that time. Descending to the camp, I told the others, and in intense excitement we watched the chronometer for seven o'clock, when the whalers would be summoned to work. Right to the minute the steam whistle came to us, borne clearly on the wind across the intervening miles of rock and snow. Never had any one of us heard sweeter music. It was the first sound created by outside human agency that had come to our ears since we left Stromness Bay in December 1914. That whistle told us that men were living near, that ships were ready, and that within a few hours we should be on our way back to Elephant Island to the rescue of the men waiting there under the watch and ward of Wild. It was a moment hard to describe. Pain and ache, boat journeys, marches, hunger and fatigue seemed to belong to the limbo of forgotten things, and there remained only the perfect contentment that comes of work accomplished. My examination of the country from a higher point had not provided definite information, and, after descending, I put the situation before Worsley and Crean. Our obvious course lay down a snow-slope in the direction of Husvik. "'Boys,' I said, "'this snow-slope seems to end in a precipice, but perhaps there is no precipice. If we don't go down, we shall have to make a detour of at least five miles before we reach level going. What shall it be?' They both replied at once, "'Try the slope.' So we started away again downwards. We abandoned the primus lamp, now empty, at the breakfast camp, and carried with us one ration and a biscuit each. The deepest snow we had yet encountered clogged our feet, but we plodded downward, and after descending about five hundred feet, reducing our altitude to two thousand feet above sea level, we thought we saw the way clear ahead. A steep gradient of blue ice was the next obstacle." Worsley and Crean got a firm footing in a hole excavated with the adz, and then lowered me as I cut steps until the full fifty feet of our alpine rope was out. Then I made a hole big enough for the three of us, and the other two men came down the steps. My end of the rope was anchored to the adz, and I had settled myself in the hole, braced for a strain in case they slipped. When we all stood in the second hole, I went down again to make more steps and in this laborious fashion we spent two hours, descending about five hundred feet. Halfway down we had to strike away, diagonally to the left, for we noticed that the fragments of ice loosened by the adz were taking a leap into space at the bottom of the slope. Eventually we got off the steep ice, very gratefully, at a point where some rocks protruded, and we could see then that there was a perilous precipice directly below the point where we had started to cut steps. A slide down a slippery slope, with the adz and our cooker going ahead, completed this descent, and incidentally did considerable damage to our much-tried trousers. When we picked ourselves up at the bottom, 
we were not more than 1,500 feet above the sea. The slope was comparatively easy. Water was running beneath the snow, making pockets between the rocks that protruded along the white surface. The shells of snow over these pockets were traps for our feet, but we scrambled down and presently came to patches of tussock. A few minutes later we reached the sandy beach. The tracks of some animals were to be seen, and we were puzzled until I remembered that reindeer, brought from Norway, had been placed on the island and now ranged along the lower land of the eastern coast. We did not pause to investigate. Our minds were set upon reaching the haunts of men, and at our best speed we went along the beach to another rising ridge of tussock. Here we saw the first evidence of the proximity of man, whose work, as is so often the case, was one of destruction. A recently killed seal was lying there, and presently we saw several other bodies bearing the marks of bullet wounds. I learned later that men from the whaling station at Stromness sometimes go round to Fortuna Bay by boat to shoot seals. Noon found us well up the slope on the other side of the bay, working east-southeast, and half an hour later we were on a flat plateau, with one more ridge to cross before we descended into Husvik. I was leading the way over this plateau, when I suddenly found myself up to my knees in water and quickly sinking deeper through the snow-crust. I flung myself down and called to the others to do the same, so as to distribute our weight on the treacherous surface. We were on top of a small lake, snow-covered. After lying still for a few moments, we got to our feet and walked delicately, like Agag, for two hundred yards, until a rise in the surface showed us that we were clear of the lake. At 1.30 p.m. we climbed round a final ridge and saw a little steamer, a whaling boat, entering the bay 2,500 feet below. A few moments later, as we hurried forward, the masts of a sailing ship lying at a wharf came in sight. Minute figures moving to and fro about the boats caught our gaze, and then we saw the sheds and factory of Stromness whaling station. We paused and shook hands, a form of mutual congratulation that had seemed necessary on four other occasions in the course of the expedition. The first time was when we landed on Elephant Island, the second when we reached South Georgia, and the third when we reached the ridge and saw the snow slope stretching below on the first day of the overland journey then when we saw Husvik rocks. Cautiously we started down the slope that led to warmth and comfort. The last lap of the journey proved extraordinarily difficult. Vainly we searched for a safe, or a reasonably safe, way down the steep ice-clad mountainside. The sole possible pathway seemed to be a channel cut by water running from the upland. Down through icy water we followed the course of this stream. We were wet to the waist shivering, cold, and tired. Presently our ears detected an unwelcome sound that might have been musical under other conditions. It was the splashing of a waterfall, and we were at the wrong end. When we reached the top of this fall, we peered over cautiously, and discovered that there was a drop of twenty-five or thirty feet, with impassable ice-cliffs on both sides. To go up again was scarcely thinkable in our utterly wearied condition. The way down was through the waterfall itself. We made fast one end of our rope to a boulder with some difficulty, due to the fact that the rocks had been worn smooth by the running water. Then Wesley and I lowered Crean, who was the heaviest man. He disappeared altogether in the falling water and came out gasping at the bottom. I went next, sliding down the rope 
and Worsley, who was the lightest and most nimble member of the party, came last. At the bottom of the fall we were able to stand again on dry land. The rope could not be recovered. We had flung down the adz from the top of the fall, and also the logbook and the cooker wrapped in one of our blouses. That was all, except our wet clothes, that we brought out of the Antarctic, which we had entered a year and a half before, with well-found ship, full equipment, and high hopes. That was all of tangible things, but in memories we were rich. We had pierced the veneer of outside things. We had suffered, starved, and triumphed, groveled down yet grasped at glory, grown bigger in the bigness of the whole. We had seen God in his splendors, heard the text that nature renders. We had reached the naked soul of man. Shivering with cold, yet with hearts light and happy, we set off towards the whaling station, now not more than a mile and a half distant. The difficulties of the journey lay behind us. We tried to straighten ourselves up a bit, for the thought that there might be women at the station made us painfully conscious of our uncivilized appearance. Our beards were long and our hair was matted. We were unwashed, and the garments that we had worn for nearly a year without a change were tattered and stained. Three more unpleasant-looking ruffians could hardly have been imagined. Worsley produced several safety pins from some corner of his garments and effected some temporary repairs that really emphasized his general disrepair. Down we hurried, and when quite close to the station we met two small boys, ten or twelve years of age. I asked these lads where the manager's house was situated. They did not answer. They gave us one look, a comprehensive look that did not need to be repeated. Then they ran from us as fast as their legs would carry them. We reached the outskirts of the station and passed through the digesting house, which was dark inside. Emerging at the other end, we met an old man, who started as if he had seen the devil himself and gave us no time to ask any question. He hurried away. This greeting was not friendly. Then we came to the wharf, where the man in charge stuck to his station. I asked him if Mr. Sorrel, the manager, was in the house. Yes, he said, as he stared at us. We would like to see him, said I. Who are you? he asked. We have lost our ship and come over the island, I replied. You have come over the island? he said in a tone of entire disbelief. The man went towards the manager's house and we followed him. I learned afterwards that he said to Mr. Sorrel, There are three funny-looking men outside who say they have come over the island and they know you. I have left them outside a very necessary precaution from his point of view. Mr. Sorrel came out to the door and said, "'Well, don't you know me?' I said. "'I know your voice,' he replied doubtfully. "'You're the mate of the daisy.' "'My name is Shackleton,' I said. Immediately he put out his hand and said, "'Come in, come in.' "'Tell me, when was the war over?' I asked. "'The war is not over,' he answered. Millions are being killed. Europe is mad. The world is mad. Mr. Sorrel's hospitality had no bounds. He would scarcely let us wait to remove our freezing boots before he took us into his house and gave us seats in a warm and comfortable room. We were in no condition to sit in anybody's house until we had washed and got into clean clothes, but the kindness of the station manager was proof even against the unpleasantness of being in a room with us. 
He gave us coffee and cakes in the Norwegian fashion, and then showed us upstairs to the bathroom, where we shed our rags and scrubbed ourselves luxuriously. Mr. Sorrell's kindness did not end with his personal care for the three wayfarers who had come to his door. While we were washing, he gave orders for one of the whaling vessels to be prepared at once in order that it might leave that night for the other side of the island and pick up the three men there. The whalers knew King Hakon Bay, though they never worked on that side of the island. Soon we were clean again. Then we put on delightful new clothes supplied from the station stores and got rid of our superfluous hair. Within an hour or two we'd ceased to be savages and had become civilized men again. Then came a splendid meal, while Mr. Sorrell told us of the arrangements he had made, and we discussed plans for the rescue of the main party on Elephant Island. I arranged that Worsley should go with the relief ship to show the exact spot where the carpenter and his two companions were camped, while I started to prepare for the relief of the party on Elephant Island. The whaling vessel that was going round to King Hakon Bay was expected back on the Monday morning, and was to call at Gritviken Harbour, the port from which we had sailed in December 1914, in order that the magistrate resident there might be informed of the fate of the endurance. It was possible that letters were awaiting us there. Worsley went aboard the whaler at ten o'clock that night and turned in. The next day the relief ship entered King Hakon Bay, and he reached Peggotty Camp in a boat. The three men were delighted beyond measure to know that we had made the crossing in safety, and that their wait under the upturned James Caird was ended. Curiously enough, they did not recognize Worsley, who had left them a hairy, dirty ruffian, and had returned his spruce and shaven self. They thought he was one of the whalers. When one of them asked why no member of the party had come round with the relief, Worsley said, "'What do you mean?' "'We thought the boss or one of the others would come round,' they explained. "'What's the matter with you?' said Wesley. Then it suddenly dawned upon them that they were talking to the man who had been their close companion for a year and a half. Within a few minutes the whalers had moved our bits of gear into their boat. They towed off the James Caird and hoisted her to the deck of their ship. Then they started on the return voyage. Just at dusk on Monday afternoon they entered Stromness Bay, where the men of the whaling station mustered on the beach to receive the rescued party, and to examine with professional interest the boat we had navigated across eight hundred miles of the stormy ocean they knew so well. When I look back at those days, I have no doubt that Providence guided us, not only across those snowfields, but across the storm-white sea that separated Elephant Island from our landing-place on South Georgia. I know that during that long and wrecking march of thirty-six hours over the unnamed mountains and glaciers of South Georgia, it seemed to me often that we were four, not three. I said nothing to my companions on the point, but afterwards Worsley said to me, "'Boss, I had a curious feeling on the march that there was another person with us.' Queen confessed to the same idea. "'One feels the dearth of human words, the roughness of mortal speech.' in trying to describe things intangible. But a record of our journeys would be incomplete without a reference to a subject very near to our hearts. End of chapter 10